Welcome to Session 14, an intriguing panel debate exploring why maternal sepsis is still in the top three for global incidence of sepsis, featuring a plethora of researchers and experts on the topic. The session is moderated by Mercedes Bonet from the World Health Organization, and we can't wait to get started. Mercedes, over to you. Good day, everybody, and welcome to session number 14 of the Fourth World Sepsis Congress, One Global Health Threat, Sepsis, Pandemics, and Antimicrobial Resistance. This session 14 is entitled Maternal Sepsis, Why It Is Still in the Top Three for Global Incidence of Sepsis. I'm Mercedes Bonnet. I'm, um, I work at the Hoover Health Organization in the Divine Sexual Reproductive Health and Research, and I will be your moderator for this um, session. Before um, starting, I just would like to um, introduce uh, the session by saying that now more than ever, we should um, make more efforts to reduce maternal mortality. WHO just published earlier this year, new maternal mortality estimates for the last 20 years, years 20 to 2020, showing alarming setbacks for maternal health, as maternal death has either increased in a lot of countries or stagnated in almost all of the regions. We are off of track to achieve sustainable development goals for reduction of maternal mortality. And efforts to reduce maternal mortality should include, without any doubt, preventing maternal death due to infections and sepsis. Indeed, infections are the third direct cause of maternal mortality after postpartum hemorrhage and pregnancy-induced hypertension. It causes around 11% of all maternal deaths um, each year. That is over 35,000 deaths every year, most of these occurring in low and middle-income countries. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. As you know very well, many more women will experience morbidity, will experience disability and long-term ill health due to infections, as you will hear um, today in this session. For this session, we have invited in an international panel of specialists that will be speaking on different topics from the epidemiology of maternal infections and sepsis to changes that are needed in clinical practice and also how to strengthen health systems, all those need to fight maternal sepsis. They come from Argentina to Colombia, passing through Lebanon, Malawi, US and the UK. We will have um, a panel discussion. We will start, each of them will give three minutes statements we welcome questions from the audience. So please use the questions um, chat box that is available for you if you want to ask any question to our panelists. With that, I would like to introduce you to our first speaker today, Dr. Alan Tita. Welcome Alan to this session. You will be given some initial remarks on the epidemiology-based assessment of the problem of maternal sepsis. Alan is um, here. 
works at the uh, University of Alabama at Birmingham in the US. Uh, he has background in fetal medicine, perinatal epidemiology, and global health, and has led and continues to lead collaborative multi-multi-side obstetric perinatal clinical trials and observational studies. Please, Alan, over to you for initial statement. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Bonnet. It's really a pleasure to be here uh, today, and thank you for setting that up, uh, indicating that uh, maternal sepsis is a top three cause of uh, maternal death uh, around the world. And it's really interesting because the proportion of maternal sepsis or uh, leading to deaths or deaths from maternal sepsis continue to uh, increase as deaths from uh, hemorrhage and uh, preeclampsia and other hypertensive uh, disorders uh, decrease around the world. As you all know or may know, WHO only recently in 2017 defined uh, maternal sepsis as infection that is suspected or confirmed plus organ dysfunction and has a number of criteria to uh, based on blood pressure, clinical and other clinical criteria to meet uh, this definition. Interestingly, uh, in the WHO Global Maternal Sepsis uh, Study or GLOS study that Dr. Bonnet knows so well, um, the rates of uh, ratios of uh, maternal infection per 1,000 live births were uh, presented. Overall, in that study, 70.4 per 1,000. In low-income countries, uh, 70.6 per 1,000. In lower-middle-income countries, approximately the same, about 72 per 1,000. But in upper-middle-income countries, uh, about 106 uh, per 1,000. And then in high-income countries, uh, 38 or, or 39 per 1,000. So clearly a discrepancy here in the uh, ratios uh, associated with um, maternal infection per 1,000. Uh, births. I think uh, to get to the bottom of this, uh, it's important to look at some of the differences that may occur in these settings, including things around risk factors uh, for maternal infection and sepsis, such as cesarean delivery, which is the number one uh, risk factor. It's associated with a three to tenfold increase in the risk of uh, infection uh, compared to those who have a vaginal delivery. And to an extent, that may explain some of the higher numbers in the low-middle-income countries where some of the cesarean rates may be as high as high-income countries. But also looking at other risk factors, prolonged rupture of membranes, prolonged uh, labor, obesity and diabetes mellitus, low socioeconomic status, lack of access to prenatal care, which may lead to delays in uh, diagnosis um, uh, of infection leading to sepsis, poor nutrition, primiparity, anemia, and multiple uh, pregnancy. Additionally, uh, just looking at the causes of maternal uh, sepsis, there are obstetric and non-obstetric uh, uh, factors, including chorioamnionitis, endometritis, wound infections that go well with uh, the, the cesarean sections, and then some of the other rare things. Pyelonephritis, pneumonia, mastitis, appendicitis, or cholecystitis may be some of the things that may not be directly uh, obstetric. So I think in getting to the bottom of this, are there differences in these causes as well as differences in the risk factors for infection due to practices, uh, uh, differences in our settings that could uh, contribute to uh, relatively 
uh, low rates in high-income countries and high rates in low-income countries. So I think we can have this discussion further, but I'll pause here uh, for others to uh, chime in. Thank you. Thanks, Alan, for um, that introduction and um, just um, yeah, strengthening that message that maternal sepsis remains um, a real problem for um, pregnant, recently pregnant women and that there are risk factors that we know could be prevented and could prevent some of these infections and sepsis. And um, we will be discussing more about um, what could be the differences on these risk factors and the differences across um, low, middle and high income countries. Um, I would like um, us to now um, watch a video that um, is coming straight from Malawi, telling the story of um, a maternal sepsis survivor and how healthcare workers and researchers are working together in Malawi to prevent, but also to better manage um, maternal sepsis in their um, settings. Maternal sepsis is one of the major causes of maternal death worldwide, particularly in low-income countries such as Malawi. In Malawi, where we will hear from healthcare workers and a sepsis survivor, the mortality ratio remains unacceptably high, at 381 per 100,000 live births. The <laughs> I don't know the condition and get Sinta and anything and no condivides a word. Cabela daily, Manis Mulisu Barba Jacobin Calibin. Can I want anti do, sir? In Tanguendera, Mafigana Sugonaguti, in Dinachira. About maternal substance, uh, it's a little situation and it's a battle that we are fighting. For us as a healthy uh, wake up providers, we have to ensure the issues of uh, hand hygiene because it's very crucial for us to uh, prevent cross uh, infection from one patient to another. And the issues of uh, uh, sterilizing issues, uh, equipments in our, uh, in our uh, theaters, uh, we also need the quality um, equipments when we are doing these procedures to our mothers. Because looking at the ground, 
uh, the high numbers of uh, aseptic uh, patients that are the ones that are, that are done season sections. Uh, the ones that are prescribing medications to these patients, they have to follow the proper guidelines on the use of antibiotics. Because once we expose these mothers to unnecessary antibiotics, they develop resistance. So when they have uh, this maternal sepsis, it's difficult for us to uh, battle this infection because they will need another second line of antibodies, which is most of the times in our facilities we don't have. Adherence to WHO guidelines and best practice on infection prevention, better detection and management of maternal sepsis can improve outcomes for mothers and their babies. In Malawi, the Malawi Liverpool Welcome Programme is working with the WHO and the Infectious Disease Institute in Uganda to understand how best to ensure the WHO guidance to prevent maternal infection and sepsis is implemented. The active prevention and treatment of maternal sepsis program is a cluster randomized trial being implemented in 60 hospitals in Malawi and Uganda. This comprehensive program aims at supporting the healthcare workers to improve their adherence to evidence-based practice to prevent infection related mortality and severe morbidity. This includes the first M sepsis bundle. The maternal sepsis bundle, specifically developed for low resource settings, is already tested in 17 health facilities across Malawi. This bundle is to ensure that all women suspected of sepsis rapidly get the right fluid management, antibiotics, source identification, transfer to the right care, and the monitoring they need. There remains a huge challenge to tackle the problem of maternal sepsis. We must balance the need for rapid detection and treatment of sepsis with the needs to tackle the growing burden of antibacterial resistance and antibiotic overuse in maternity settings. It was harrowing to hear the testimony of a woman who survived sepsis but will suffer the lifelong consequences of this. We hope our efforts to develop evidence-based guidance and help practitioners to better implement what we know works will mean in the future we can see more women benefiting from safe and positive experiences throughout and after pregnancy without maternal sepsis. And um, with this, um, I would like to um, introduce you to our next speaker. Um, Helen um, Cheney is a professor of midwifery. She's based uh, at the University of Stirling in Scotland. Um, as a midwife and researcher, he has led um, multiple successful programs um, of research in maternal child health, including um, different uh, trials uh, and evaluations on implementation as science. In 2019, she survived sepsis and um, has been uh, since advocating for uh, better prevention and, and management of um, this condition in Scotland. 
Helen, please, um, if you could um, give us your um, initial statements on um, your work on how uh, sepsis affected you. Thank you, Mercedes, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to join you at this panel this evening. As Mercedes says, I'm a midwife, and like all midwives worldwide, I'm interested and concerned about sepsis, but that isn't really why I'm here this evening. I'm here because, as Mercedes said, four years ago, I was very severely ill with sepsis. I survived. You don't need me to tell you that, I guess. But as you can see, not without um, permanent deficit. And, and what you can't see is that I'm also a double amputee. But yet that still makes me one of the lucky ones. And uh, many pregnant and postnatal women and their babies are, are not so lucky. And, and I guess that's why we're all here this evening. Within the UK, sepsis uh, remains one of the main direct causes of maternal deaths. The number of deaths has been from sepsis has been slowly but steadily rising in recent years. And it sits currently as one of the top six uh, causes of direct maternal deaths. And that excludes um, sepsis uh, deaths more recently related to COVID. So what's the role of the midwife? Well, the word midwife, of course, means with women. And the key purpose of a midwife is to support women through pregnancy, birth, and in the crucial postnatal period when, as we know, most deaths occur. And it's the midwife's key role to recognise deviation from normal and to take appropriate action. And to do this for all women, um, providing the same standard of care for all women, regardless of race or socioeconomic status. So in countries where midwives are working, they are the most likely healthcare professional to be present and to have the opportunity to recognise the early signs of sepsis and to take action. Midwives are, of course, also well-placed to educate women and families about the signs of sepsis. And that's a very important role, but recognising sepsis in the early stages is not easy. And uh, I am here to, to, as a witness to that, because I am a midwife and I was a nurse before I was a midwife, but I didn't recognise uh, that I was dying of, of sepsis. Uh, until it was really almost too late. And in fact, it was only because a friend arrived who could see that I was extremely ill that I, I survived at all. And for that reason, I think the most important things we need to do are to, firstly, make sure that midwives are aware of the signs and symptoms of sepsis. They are most likely, where, they, where midwives are present, they have a unique opportunity to recognise the signs of sepsis and to be a rapid first responder. In the UK, and, and a good example is the UK Sepsis Trust is, is currently working with NHS England to incorporate the, their signs of sepsis 
in the new um, maternal early warning system. But in order to recognise the signs of sepsis, midwives actually have to be, be there. So it, it's really important that we aim to scale up midwifery in countries where there are few midwives or no midwives. But even in, in the UK, I, I, I have to say this, where we have to be vigilant um, to a decline in numbers of midwives and an erosion of the direct care role of midwives I've just come back today from a conference of, of midwives and I was talking to them about this panel this evening. I said, what's the most important thing that I should say? And, it's, and what they said was, we need to save postnatal care. We need to ensure that midwives are able to continue to provide postnatal care as that's where most, most deaths occur. So thank you, Mercedes. That's my statement. Thanks, Helen. And um, I think that is striking, striking to hear from you, like even with, uh, with the knowledge that we as health providers have, how difficult it can be sometimes to identify sepsis or to identify how sick a person can be. And um, this is something that we will uh, talk more about during um, our discussion, but um, let's just go through uh, the next um, statements from uh, the panelists. And um, our third panelist is um, Maria Fernanda Escobar-Vidarte. She's um, a gynecologist, obstetrician and intensivist um, from Colombia, working in um, Cali. And she has extensive experience also training health providers to um, provide better um, obstetric and uh, maternal care. Maya Fernanda, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Mercedes. And I think that we are in the same way uh, with uh, our partners here because probably my intervention is, is very similar. We know that the effective prevention, early identification and proper management of maternal infection before to be sepsis and with sepsis can help reduce uh, the burden on infection as an underlying and contributing cause of morbidity and mortality. But probably for us, the problem is the education. <clears throat> for example, the education for early identification and standardized management of maternal service is a challenge worldwide. A limitation at the beginning, for example, has been established the, for the diagnosis of maternal sepsis due to the multiple use of definition and diversity of recognition criteria in pregnant women. For the reason in, in 2018, uh, probably we are part of, of this definition, we, 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 uh, we went or we, we participate in this definition, the WHO formulate and propose an update of the definition of maternal sepsis to be applied worldwide. And although we have this definition, the diagnostic criteria we use have not been adapted exclusively for the obstetric population and are taken for published evidence in adults. Uh, we don't have an asepsis diagnostic system just for women. And that said, uh, systems like the sepsis 3 proposed 
has uh, never included women at the moment to realize and to propose this. This situation has led to positions regarding the validity of these scales, uh, the validity from the national societies like the maternal societies around the world, because many of these uh, positions consider that no one of the definition of sepsis think the physiological changes that occur during pregnancies and these changes can complicate the early identification of sepsis in pregnant women. On the other hand, the importance and the why and how to use the early warning systems and the diagnostic scales like the SOFA for sepsis in the obstetric settings are still being determined at all medical and educational levels. In many places like our countries that are low and middle income countries, it still doesn't know how to use these uh, scales are uh, these early warning system. And this, an additional, there are not an unified global proposal for the sequential use of the early warning systems for the risk of, to identify patients with risk of sepsis and the complementary schemes such as SOPA for the diagnostic confirmation. This generates a lot of confusion for medical team, especially in series where the evidence is not up to date. And finally, management schemes for adults extrapolated to pregnant women have not been widely disseminated. The concept of managed use bundles and emphasize the first hour is only sometimes standardized. Even today, we have difficulties in the critical care obstetric work uh, with the early use of vasopressors in a station septic shop, simply due to the ignorance for the usefulness and the safety in obstetric patients. Then uh, I think that the education is our probably big challenge. Thank you. Thanks, Maria Fernanda. And um, we have two additional panelists that I will introduce. Before that, I wanted to uh, remind the audience that you can either post comments or questions using the chat box, the specific chat box for your questions that then it will be easier for me um, to filter and bring them um, for discussion. Our last two panelists bring um, a health system perspective um, to the panel. I would like first to introduce you to um, Sabina Mahal. She um, is based in Canada, works at University of Sherbrooke, and um, has expertise in developing and analyzing organizational innovations that aim to improve access to primary health services and also to bring changes in how um, health human resources are um, used. These include family physicians, but of course, midwives and nurses. Um, Sabina, please. Hello, thank you, Mercedes, for introducing me. So uh, I am really pleased to be part of this panel. I just want to remind that, uh, of course, Lebanon has participated in the GLOSS study. And at that time, I was the field coordinator who worked uh, in collaboration with Dr. Faisal al at as a national coordinator. So I really uh, want to uh, use the lenses, the systems lens approach, which means we talk about prevention, about treatment, about management, and we focus on healthcare provider medical equipment. But as a system lens approach, 
uh, I uh, I usually uh, introduce the system approach like we see healthcare providers as in interactive, uh, as uh, uh, interacting within their health organization structure and within the wider environment, the external context, which means they are impacted uh, by the political economical forces, the health system functioning, the technology as a wider environment, as, as organizational context. They are also uh, interacting and they depend on the medical, the equipments, if the enabling environment, if we foster an uh, enabling environment. Why do I, uh, why I made this introduction? Just to make the link with what is happening in Lebanon. In Lebanon, actually, the system, our system, as you know, there is the crisis in Lebanon. There is also the blast, the port blast, the, which made, which helped to collapse the system. And actually, this healthcare provider, it's an open system theory, which means to be surviving, to be all the time surviving. So you have to receive, be impacted by positive forces and by uh, organization at the organization level or at the external level. So, which means, I want to say that our healthcare provider with medical equipment, with training them, empowering them without looking at the global lens, at the global system, they cannot survive and even the system cannot survive. That's why later on we will develop what to do in such cases and how to approach uh, to, to uh, choose or select interventions within this uh, systemic approach and lens to be able to prevent and to manage uh, sepsis or maternal infections. Many thanks, uh, Sabina. And um, I'm sure that during the discussions, we will um, be very pleased to hear from that health system lens, as you call it, and how the context also affects how health workers can respond to maternal sepsis, right? Um, Edgardo Abalos is um, our last panelist um, for this session. He's an obstetrician, but um, he's head of the, the obstetric department at Maternidad Martin. Uh, this is in uh, Rosario, Argentina. And I think that will also bring that um, different health manager perspective um, to this um, session. Uh, with um, his role. He's also co-coordinator of the Observatory of Sexual and Reproductive Health of Argentina and has um, quite a lot of experience in collaborating with health authorities in implementing programs and research and how best to integrate um, results of research into um, policies. Edgardo, please go ahead. Thank you, Mercedes, and thank you all the panelists for this, this brilliant session. Uh, I have a kind of challenging question to, to make my statement, and that it was if there is a role of the health system or any change in the health system to improve results from the maternal sepsis in pregnant women in uh, Argentina and beyond, upper, in an upper middle-income country like Argentina or even in more developed countries. And after hearing the heartbreaking story of Helen, we say, yes, absolutely, that there is a role of the, health, of the healthcare system to improve 
results, uh, especially for those uh, consequences of sexism in women and also in their babies. Um, and if we if we look at the uh, all the uh, rec international recommendations regarding availability of resources, uh, spe specifically in GLOSS study, we make an analysis of the availability of resources in, in uh, more than uh, 450 hospitals in 52 countries participating in the GLOSS study. And even though the uh, as as uh, was uh, Dr. Tita Rice, the individual uh, uh, characteristic of women have an important role in, in the risk of uh, having complica uh, complication of uh, infections. And also Dr. Tita stressed that the, the development of the country also is important for the, the, this, this increased risk in, in developing consequences of infection, even in developed countries, the uh, availability of resources and the use of the, those resources and the wise use of those resources also plays a role in the prevention and early detection, as Fernanda uh, stressed out, of uh, infection and to avoid the, these catastrophic consequences. Uh, for our hospital, usually uh, we are uh, overwhelmed uh, by, by the number of uh, patients. Usually the, the, the infrastructure is not enough. The, the, These this big, busy hospitals are always dealing with the day-to-day -day attention of day-to-day -day care of patients. And this is reflected in the availability of uh, uh, trained personnel, uh, uh, dedicate exclusively to infections. So half of the hospital in our last study uh, counted with an infection disease specialist. Nurses and doctors are usually put in the front line caring for the day-to-day -day, uh, care of the patients and that there is less attention on this important role of the infections committee in the hospital to um, train and to monitor the, uh, the, the problem at, at, the, at the hospital level. Human resources training also is, uh, even in developed countries, is, uh, is a problem. We found in GLOSS that the, even, even though Fernanda mentioned that there is not the perfect tool to re for every recognition of sexes, even the tools we count have very, very easy and low-cost uh, components, like uh, measuring the patient's heart rate, that is not universally applied by practitioners, practitioners uh, even in developed countries. So training of human resources for early recognition and to avoid the, and to prevent uh, uh, infection is an issue and is a, a, pending, a pending issue for the health system to, to respond to this, these needs for women. And lastly, in, in our developing countries, we have a, an epidemic of cesarean section. And some of the, our countries have resolved the wash resources, they can with water, they can with sanitation, they can with antibiotics. And usually we translate the guidelines, especially for in busy hospital for early discharge, 
uh, coming from developed countries, and then we send women to their households where they have they lack the basic wash uh, uh, resources to care of uh, surgery. So in, in, in countries in which the cesarean section, uh, cesarean section rates is rapidly increasing, the hospital stays is decreasing, and the women are sent to their homes where the wash uh, infrastructure is not assured. So there is still a, a, a big role for the health system to uh, see it, uh, the problem holistically and uh, uh, involve all the, the, the actors, all the stakeholders in the sectors just to try to raise and to address this important problem. Thank you very much, Mercedes. Thank you, Edgardo. And um, I think that this has been really a great um, introduction uh, for the discussion um, we will have. Um, we are getting some questions in the chat. If you have questions, please um, use the chat box to um, pose those questions to our panelists. I, um, I will start um, with our discussion and we'll be checking the, the chat box to bring in um, the audience questions also um, to you. Um, I wanted to start with a question to Alan. And um, I wanted to ask you, because you have this experience of having worked both in high income, but also um, in low income countries, what do you see as like the main differences in terms of prevention management of maternal sepsis in each of these um, settings? And also, because you are based in the US where we know that maternal mortality is very high compared to other high income countries. Are there any differences within high income countries and what you have learned from um, the US um, situation? Thanks, Alan. Yeah, Mercedes, uh, thank, thank you so much. That's a really, uh, uh, really great question. And just to uh, add some additional background, I uh, uh, trained and worked uh, for a while in Cameroon and continue to do work there um, across missions and then also do work in Zambia and other places, although my main place of work is here uh, in, in Birmingham. Um, I think there are a number of uh, different uh, things that go into some of the differences, uh, but this also highlights the concept of uh, uh, the, your, your question about the specificities here in the US compared to other high income countries. This whole concept of reciprocal innovation, because here, right in the US, uh, I think we do have places that, uh, you know, uh, well developed in the urban areas, but we do have the rural areas, underserved areas that also mirror uh, some of the uh, uh, inequities that exist in uh, low-income low countries as well, both uh, between high and, and low, but also within low-income countries as well. And I think we can learn from one setting, even in a low-income setting, and that will absolutely be applicable here in the U.S., in terms of differences, um, obviously, in general, uh, there are more, uh, I, th uh, I think, developed uh, protocols to prevent infection in this setting. 
right? So prevention, GBS prophylaxis, that's mostly related to the baby, but there are other criteria that allow us to provide prophylaxis that benefits the mother in terms of preventing infection, uh, uh, preventing pyelonephritis in pregnancy uh, as well. Um, there are also protocols that allow, uh, you know, sepsis, the whole concept of sepsis protocols to immediately activate a whole host of actions to prevent that patient who is showing early signs of sepsis from developing more severe, um, you know, sepsis that can lead uh, to death. So, uh, and that comes also with more frequent use of, uh, you know, of antibiotics. Um, so those are some of the differences. But when you look even and compare some of the mid low and uh, middle income countries with high income countries, you see that, and we've seen this in a recent large trial, where the just the level of use of antibiotics is so high. Uh, some of that may have to do with higher rates of C-section, really high rates of C-section um, that uh, contribute uh, to uh, high rates of, uh, of infection. So the general context as well, as, some, as was already indicated, it, it, this should not occur in a vacuum, it should occur in just a general context. Are there other facilitators and barriers within the system uh, that uh, can uh, ultimately lead to maternal sepsis? Uh, yes, and those are seen within different settings in this setting, but also differences between high income and low income countries. I could go on on this because this really captures what we are, you know, uh, just the whole uh, discussion we're having, but we'll pause here for others. Thank you. Many thanks, um, Alan. And I think that you raise um, very good points uh, on how this is a con condition that affects, uh, could affect any woman and um, it's not a low or high income country problem, right? And that we we know that there are certain populations that might be more at risk or exposed, and uh, working um, making sure that we work on addressing um, any risk or issues they may have is important. Antibiotic uh, prophylaxis to prevent um, infections is um, is also um, key. Um, I wanted to follow up on um, a question uh, for uh, Maya Fernanda, and is um, around what what do you see as then the main challenges health providers face when they have to identify um, maternal sepsis? And I will just um, um, follow up with a question that it's. Um, from uh, someone in the audience uh, that um, you mentioned it, uh, early warning scores. Um, is there a role for any other markers to detect maternal sepsis? The specific question is on uh, early use of biomarkers um, to do so. Thanks. Thank Mark. you. Thank you, Mercedes. Um, probably I will repeat, but I think that our Probably our biggest challenge is to make the education for the proper diagnosis management uh, universal. Yeah, to be able to put these concepts that have already that I have that uh, have already been validated in evidence 
in a simple, understandable, uh, and clear way from the frontline health workers. Because in the evidence, probably we have the, the response, you know, and, and probably we can understand, but I will put this information in front of the patients, you know, and adaptable to the context. And uh, I want to give uh, some example. I'm from Latin America. Most articles that have the evidence and these these uh, kind of academic events um, are always in English. Are published in English. I conducted in English. And in our countries, less than twenty percent of the health personnel can communicate in English. That's the reason why because why we are always late. You know, because we need this, this process to translate, to put in front of the of the uh, health workers, the information needs to be more, 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 uh, more aggressive in our, in a new way to, to try to do that. The, the second challenge for, for us is how to use the early one system systematically, you know, regardless of the system, because there are many. Uh, we like to use the males. There are all of these uh, systems are focused in the reassessment of the viral signs and being able to take very, very with discipline, you know, how to interpret them and even permit um, rapid reference or more aggressive treatments or management. And in the gloss, for example, we 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 uh, experiment that almost twenty five percent of the patient in most critical condition of the disease didn't have complete the viral signs uh, signs excuse me uh, at the moment of the recollected information you know and then I think it's very important to uh, be more clear in the education that the viral signs are the most important. Uh, package uh, for our early detection, and in the same sense, and I think in the in the question about the labs or the other uh, systems, for example, we can return to the measure of the capillary refill because now in the evidence we know that the behavior of the capillary refill is very similar to the acid lactic, but we are always thinking that the only way is, for example, use the labs. And the problem is that in our lower middle income countries, we don't have always the possibility. And probably we need to return at the sample complete physical examination. And I think it's very important to, to think in the size of the implementations adapted at the concepts, try to put the same information to the level one, to the level four, yeah, to emphasize in the suspect maternal sepsis and to referral very quickly to other high complex facility, um, the, the patients to try to be more, more quickly or more aggressive in to confirm the diagnosis and to the, uh, start the management very quickly. And finally, and I think that is very important that we have more cells than human, and it's very important and to try to, to move, you know, to try to use technology to make education and real-time assistance more accessible, especially in areas when we don't have uh, personal training or specialized um, uh, personnel that maybe can help 
uh, to our doctors, general doctors, or our nurses or our midwives that probably needs any kind of support to try to be uh, to try to do this uh, early management and early detection. Many thanks, uh, Maria Fernanda, and I think that um, your intervention follows very well Alan's point about that need for us to think on what are the resources health providers have available and that um, the simple monitoring of vital signs could really save life. And this is something that seems to be very hard to address and improve in obstetric care. And we know very well that even if women are hospitalized in obstetric services, sometimes they don't receive the monitoring they require to do this early identification of um, an infection and address it in time so it doesn't become sepsis. Um, it sounds simple, but I think that we are all really struggling um, to do that. We can have additional lab biomarkers that could help that process and use other technology, but um, just keeping in mind that we have to also sometimes stick to what uh, we should be doing, and we know very well that monitoring the vital signs, um, it's one of the things um, is um, important. Um, I um, will move on um, to um, a different topic and will bring um, a question that is coming um, from the panel at uh, the same um, time and um, is a question for um, Helen and um, is on what what is your experience and what will be your advice uh, to engage with healthcare the healthcare community the healthcare providers so they know how to prevent how to early detect and manage infections um, and maternal sepsis um, could you give us some examples and uh, the question from uh, the audience is like would on how common it is that we can educate women and their families, even if they have normal pregnancy without problems. So we can help them better in the event of a future uh, pregnancy. So beyond just sticking to addressing the problem when it happens, how, how this could also um, maybe from a healthcare worker perspective, um, help with uh, preventing uh, death from maternal sepsis. Thanks, Helen. Thank you, Mercedes. So, I, I think I have to come. I have to agree with what Maria's point was that that simple, simple markers and simple ways of identifying early stages of sepsis has to be the front line of um, detection and treatment, surely. Um, most women that die of sepsis die in the postnatal period. And as Aguardo had said, you know, this is after they've been discharged from healthcare and they're back in the community. And you're really relying then on um, their family or friends to, to be vigilant 
on their behalf because, as I've said, it is these early signs of of sepsis are really, and I've I've thought about this from a personal point of view a number of times, and obviously aware of the signs of sepsis, but even now I think. Would I have recognised those signs of sepsis in myself at an earlier stage? And I think the answer is probably still no, because most of the earlier signs of sepsis and even quite late signs of sepsis are easily confused with flu or or other things. And in particular, I'm not sure who said many of the, the things that women will be experiencing after childbirth could easily be confused. And I think for what is it that makes a woman or a, a woman's family trigger seeking help? And, you know, I think these things are, no matter how we we talk about it, just think, could it be sepsis? I think we're, we're naturally programmed to not, not think of that, actually. At the same time, you don't want people to be so hypervigilant that they can't live their lives and our other problem of antimicrobial resistance, you know, as we've all spoken about. So actually, I don't think I'm answering your question at all uh, as to how, how how we go forward. I just think it is, well, I guess what I do think is in order for these signs to be recognised and for women to be educated, we need to have midwives or other healthcare professionals on the ground who are able to educate the women. You know, we I don't think we can rely on women and their families to to detect these early signs, especially in women that are at risk, women who've had cesarean sections. It's rather pushing the blame onto women to and their families to, to detect it and to take the appropriate action when really what we should be doing is providing proper postnatal health care and providing well-trained healthcare providers who have the ability to do, as Maria says, and just record the vital signs. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily need the highest level of technology. You just need a relationship with a healthcare professional. You need somebody there to record somebody's vital signs. That is that is the most important thing. Yes, we can educate women. Again, it's a public health issue, isn't it? And I think that's what Sabine was talking about, you know, the systems in place. If a woman doesn't have basic hygiene in her home, you know, how is she supposed to prevent sepsis? Now I think I'm going way beyond your question, but I think it is quite simple and quite fundamental. As you say, it sounds simple. I don't think just relying on trying to educate women and their families is the solution. I don't think that's fair. I think we need to have good postnatal health care in particular to give people the opportunity to have their vital signs recorded and have the opportunity to detect sepsis. Thanks, Helen. And maybe I can follow up with um, a question to uh, Sabina, because you mentioned it, um, her previous um, intervention. And um, I was wondering, from um, what you know from Lebanon, but also from um, your work, um, and sticking with thinking about um, healthcare workers and what they would need. Do you think that they have an enough level of awareness about maternal sepsis? Is there something that we could do at, at that level um, to um, improve the current situation? 
Thanks, Sabina. Okay, thanks, uh, Mercedes. Uh, I will talk uh, in general, and because focusing on Lebanon for the time being as a country is in crisis, it's not really the the main the, the, the best example to give. But all studies show that the level of awareness is low, and especially in low mid uh, middle income countries. And the, the, the studies of uh, awareness campaign have shown that it has helped to raise their awareness and make, uh, make them more self-confident to decide. That is also other literature review says that campaigns alone are not sufficient. We need a multimodal intervention, multimodal actions, I mean, that is why, actually, if we navigate via the literature, we say that awareness is very important because we know that their level is low. And via the technology, it's really efficient, effective, and it has worked during the COVID, the pandemic, which is the, 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 the worst crisis all over the world. We know that by using digital technology, by even using virtual training session, I'm talking about healthcare provider because also the public, the community needs to, we need to raise their level of awareness. So by mobile devices, even if you are in sub-Saharan Africa countries, people have their mobiles, it's essential. So uh, also electronic media, don't we have to mobilize to combine multiple interventions to raise their level of awareness. And what is important is that Usually when we make needs assessment in general, we can, interventions are, literature offers for us what the literature, it means the intervention via literatures. But we know very well that we cannot transfer this intervention without customizing it to the context, to the setting. What is their needs, essential needs? I mean, what works in one country doesn't work in another country. What I know in our country, in Lebanon, despite the situation, despite the crisis, despite people not being able even sometimes to afford food, but their connection with, with their mobiles is essential. I mean, is essential. That is which makes us see that technology works and it's the direct like uh, uh, communication strategy to mobilize. This is one part of the things. But also, I would like to say that awareness is among one component of other strategies. Simplistic intervention don't work. We have, as I said, if you may allow me to, to, make like, uh, to, to, to make the link with what I have said, we, I am focusing, you asked me about healthcare provider, but I don't have to forget that this healthcare provider evolves and works in organizational setting structure. This organizational structure depends on the contextual external environment. So when we say, for example, we see funding for financial or funding for educating and training healthcare workers, I would say that we have to empower them, invest in them. What does it mean? Yes, we have to do training to build their capacities, but also we have to look where they are working, in which environment is it? Uh, does it have an impact positive on them, on their motivation? 
What is the workload? What is the, the staffing levels? Do they work in crowded environment? We don't have to underestimate. We see a lot, I see a lot of funding, training, building capacities, but I don't see clearly like plans or what do we do for this environment? Is it, for example, are there, for example, in some places, are there like skill mix strategies to be able in case of having shortage of resources? We know that, for example, in Lebanon, 40% of MD, they left the country, including obstetrician. 30% of nurses and midwives. So we have always to, to think about the system because all, all uh, these forces, however, it's positive forces or negative forces are impacting the healthcare worker. So how do we do, what do we do to empower him? Not only train him, empower him how to adapt to the situation. For example, how, what do we do? What do we implement a strategy to retain and to at attract staff? But let's just give you an example with the Health Quebec system has faced major challenge about human resources, uh, nurses dying, nurses having COVID, and actually they are, they have the strategy of attracting nurses even from Lebanon, from my country. I mean, I know that it needs funds, but we have always, always to think to be proactive. I mean, when thinking about funds to train, thinking about how to mobilize, how to have advocacy efforts to also think about staffing levels, let's say at the ministry, at the national level, what do we do for these human resources? Just to give a part, of, uh, of course, from prevention program, control program, I can, I can just give an example, which is I find a good strategy of WHO in Lebanon. Actually, the, we have liberal midwife practicing and all, I'm sorry to say, all medical doctors and not only medical doctors were there against practicing liberal practice midwives or during the pandemic, the practice, the, the practicing as liberal midwives has helped many women because they couldn't afford, you know, paying the fees. So the WHO has launched the initiative of training, building their capacities on infection prevention and Following that, on-site visits assessment to make sure that they applied what, what the, their knowledge and how they applied it, and also a future plan for continuous education improvement. This is like, just even for training, this is a, a system perspective. A system perspective because not only we give training, we follow them, we make on-site assessment, and also we are filling the gap of human resources that existing in the health system. Thanks, Sabina. I think that this is, you raise a very important problem that we see everywhere. And uh, we have examples from your country, Lebanon, but also in Latin America. But Helen could also speak about UK and Scotland, right? And we are all facing the same problems of um, human resources, workload, and uh, how this certainly impact um, how we can address maternal sepsis in, in um, health facilities and in the community. Edgardo, I wanted to follow with a question for you then, because I think that as head of a, a very large maternity hospital in Argentina, I'm sure that you have faced this problem. What, what would be your suggestions or advice, how, how we could uh, try to fix 
this problem. Do you have any examples you would like to share, not only regarding human resources, but in general for healthcare facilities, infrastructure and access to medicines, to even water, right, and, and sanitation? Thank you, Mercedes. I, I, if I have to resume in one word, monitoring, monitoring, and monitoring, aggressive monitoring. So you can train, but it's, as, as I, I mentioned before, I completely agree with all my colleagues regarding the, the need for training and the, uh, and the access to the latest evidence. But if this uh, evidence is not tra translated into practice, we will fail. So uh, there as as also, people mentioned in the in the in the in the chat in the room. Uh, you don't need expensive technologies. You uh, so you you can train to to uh, monitor the the pulse rate, but then you have to check that the pulse rate what measure in every woman uh, suspecting an infection. So you can uh, train in hand washing, but you need the specialized nurse. Uh, infection disease nurse externally watching how the staff hand wash uh, and perform the hand wash before going to theater. Because training itself is not enough. Then you have to monitor how the, it is, it was performed, it, it is implemented. So there are very, very cheap interventions, just the, the, the vaginal cleansing before the cesarean section is something that is very cheap. So all the cesarean section the web and it's recommended, highly recommended by WHO. They reduce the rate of uh, post-surgical infections. So all the cesarean sections uh, were performed the vaginal cleansing before before the, the the surgical procedure. So you only will know that if you monitor it. So you, you we need to need to be aggressive in monitoring. In our last uh, in our last outbreak of post post-surgical infections a couple of years ago, we were the carriers. So we, we, we uh, make the test in, the, in, the, in our skin and the doctors and the personnel have the bleed-resistant uh, 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 microbials uh, in our skin. So the, 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 the intervention were directly to that. All of us, we are decolonized for, for bleed uh, germs. In the last outbreak of uh, of the of post-surgical infection, the, the germs were the vaginal flora is very sensitive to all antibiotics. So the problem was different, it was not the doctors carrying out the, the microbes, where a problem of the hygiene, hygiene uh, uh, of the cleansing of, of the women. So I said, okay, 40, uh, 20, uh, 48 hours after the C-section, we are sending women to home. So to where? Uh, are they are they allowed to 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 perform all the the care of their skin after the cesarean section the care of the, the uh, do they have all the wash uh, infrastructure to care about themselves as as Sabina said and, and also Helen mentioned so do do we know about the the, the living conditions of these women going home after just a very very short time in the hospital so. Um, this, the situation is not stay, uh, static, is is evolving. So what, you can have an outbreak this year that 
could have some reasons, and then next year you can have another outbreak and with different reasons. So the, my, my, uh, my suggestion is that we need to be aggressive surveillance in the surveillance. We have to, uh, to know what the problem is, try to understand it, and try to act fast as <laughs> with, the, with the early detection and early recognition. Thank you. Thanks, Ergado. And I think that you um, you just brought an, another important point that is um, surveillance, right, in, in healthcare facilities and also highlighting the importance of um, having good infection prevention and control um, in place. Otherwise, I don't think that you would have been able to know what was causing uh, sometimes, right, peaks of, um, as you mentioned, for example, uh, post-cesarean um, infections and being able to address that um, seems um, also um, key um, to address the issue of uh, maternal sepsis. You also touch on some um, risk factors, and I wanted to then uh, come back to Alan um, could you maybe expand on what, what are the risk factors we know? Uh, C-science section has been mentioned by different panelists as one of the highest. I think that um, you yourself mentioned it in, in your introductory um, presentation. Um, and again, what, what would be your advice then? What, what do we do? Some women need C-science section, right? Sometimes... Um, and we see in some hospitals, they have very high rates of cesarean section that might be uh, not necessary. Um, yeah, I, I'm eager to hear from you. Um, yeah, uh, uh, thank you, Mercedes. So, you, you know, we've been doing some work in this area around uh, prevention of infection, especially in C-section. So, uh, and WHO recognizes this, that antibiotic prophylaxis is, is uh, key among some of the other interventions that Edgardo mentioned. Um, but uh, also having the appropriate indication for the C-section is crucial to prevent, I mean, a five to 10 fold uh, times increase in the risk of infection com compared to vaginal deliveries. Um, so anything we can do uh, to reduce inappropriate C-sections would be great. And we do know, we're just, again, completing a, 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 a large uh, study here where we uh, did everything to uh, make sure the C-section rates were, uh, were reasonable, but they ended up being very, very high in, in some countries. So we know 75% C-section rate is not the way to go. So something, you know, uh, could be done there. But I wanted to, uh, uh, especially for those C-sections that are uh, indicated, um, uh, obviously managing the labor appropriately. So if, if, uh, uh, avoiding uh, uh, doing the C-section at the right time, not waiting too long to do it, because that also dramatically increases the risk of infection. Interestingly, just to touch back on your on the, uh, the comment about biomarkers, and I agree, the role for biomarker is, I don't think there is one now, but maybe there is one in the future. Um, we did a C-section study where we, as you know, uh, used azithromycin and added that to the usual antibiotic and were able to reduce the C-section uh, infection, post-C-section infection rate by 50%. And that is standard now in the US for all post-cesarean um, 
uh, 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 post-cesarean uh, done after labor. But we did a study there where we looked at a number in these women, we collected blood at around the time of delivery and looked at a number of biomarkers uh, uh, that uh, some inflammatory markers and really then followed them until they developed different types of infections. And the model was highly, highly predictive of who was going to get an infection for about three out of five biomarkers that we looked at with an AUC of about 96%. It's very, obviously very rare uh, to see that, but this needs to be validated. It needs to be validated. And, and then we need to look at things around costs associated with it. So that's potentially an area of uh, uh, de uh, development. We published one paper on it of development where you could say, well, could you, at the time they get the C-section in the hospital, do a blood test that tells you that two weeks later, with some high degree of precision, they are going to likely develop an infection. That might be uh, helpful if, uh, for the right group if we can also find a way to make it affordable. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Alan. This, um, this is very good. And, and I think that we will all, all agree that um, regarding to cesarean section, there's uh, also a lot to be done and that um, reducing the rates of unnecessary cesarean sections will also help with um, addressing some of these maternal morbidities um, that we, that, uh, we often um, see. And it's probably not only sepsis, but also, uh, for example, postpartum hemorrhage, right? As um, they also have higher risk of, of that. Um, and um, I also wanted just to link uh, something you said about uh, monitoring labor and being able to do cesarean section at the right time, but also allow maybe women to um, to labor longer, and sometimes that cesarean session wouldn't be needed. With uh, something Helen mentioned at the beginning about scaling up midwifery, because I really think that that um, it's also um, a way forward in terms of reducing not only maternal sepsis, but maternal morbidities um, in general. Um, I was wondering, Helen, if you want to add something uh, about that and uh, if you have yeah, examples um, from, uh, from um, your country or other countries on, on how to do this. Thank you, Mercedes. I think this is a real um, big challenge for us, it's a here in the UK. Certainly, we're seeing rapidly rising cesarean section rates, and it's really quite hard to see how that's going to change anytime soon. I think we're. I'm expecting that we're going to see increasing cesarean section rates for quite some time now, and I think that this is something really related again to, to what Sabina was saying about, you know, the context and everything being interconnected and it really being a very complex situation. So for maybe the last 10 years in the UK, we, we have had quite a lot of attention on trying to um, look towards preserving normal birth, if you like, preserving a physiological 
approach to birth. So, so, uh, so looking, moving away from the rigid um, action lines of the Friedman curve, which dictated, you know, this, you know, how rapidly a woman's cervix would dilate, and with intervention, you know, quite promptly, um, where women deviated from that to a more um, well, I won't say relaxed, but I don't uh, still a vigilant approach, but recognizing that cervical dilatation can be um, a lot longer, you know, for some women and, and, you know, less intervention. So, however, there's been more of a, a reversal of that, I think, in more recent years and, and most recently. And that's really connected to the, the drive to reduce stillbirth. Now, everybody wants to reduce stillbirth, but a number of initiatives have been introduced in the UK specifically directed at reducing stillbirth, but they've had a knock-on effect, I think, of increasing the number of cesarean sections. That seems how it that seems to me how that's going. So there's a kind of a knock-on effect of an of of a of initiatives to try and improve uh, maternal and infant health on one side that has potential detriment on the other. And I don't think we've yet found the balance of that. So, and we are also seeing increased um, cases of sepsis and maternal deaths from sepsis. I was at this, the conference, the, the International Labour and Birth Conference, and I was really interested to see the newly introduced a partogram that's been developed by the WHO that aims to assist midwives in, uh, well, worldwide. And I think there is a move to introduce it into the UK as well, but that looks at vigilance, but, but allowing more opportunity for women's labour to progress more physiologically, perhaps. And that looked very promising, I think. Uh, now, I'm less well able than you are yourself, Mercedes, to talk about that because I think that you've been very involved in the development of that. But but I think that's um so that's an important opportunity there. But as I say, I do think that systems are all interconnected and and attempts to improve things in one area can have a negative knock-on effect in, in another. And I believe that's what we're seeing in the UK at present. Thanks, Helen. Um, and um, we are approaching the end of this session, but um, wanted to ask a last question to Maya Fernanda. And um, this is um, also because um, she has been working very hard with uh, FIGO. This is the International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics around humanizing um, maternal care. And childbirth, and I was wondering, Maria Fernanda, if you had something uh, to add, and maybe I would expand the question to how then we humanize also the care that pregnant, recently pregnant women with maternal sepsis um, receive, and whether that will have an impact in uh, outcomes, in in your view. Thank you, Mercedes, and I think that that is very important because. In the same way of the education, uh, we believe that International Federation and that obstetricians 
that is very important to educate in non-technical skills um, with our teams because probably, uh, and I agree with all your comments, it's very important to maintain, you know, the surveillance, the, to maintain, you know, the discipline and, and to try to put all this information with, in front of the patient with our uh, health personnel. But it's important to maintain always in our mind that we are uh, trading and we, we are doing management in, in some women that has a family or their kids, husband or, or whatever. And in many places like our lower middle income countries, we are in very difficult conditions. And I understand very well what is the situation in the Lebanon and in the Africa, but inclusive in Latin America, we have little Lebanon, little uh, Africans in the same places. And then um, non-technical skills that is uh, in, our, in our health workers team is very important because we need to care our, our personal health before to, to put so many responsibilities in there. Uh, we don't, in, in our normal, uh, formal programs in education, in medicine, for example, we, don't, we are not talking about of humanization. We are not talking about regularly, about the non-technical skill, uh, about the leadership, communication, how to transfer, you know, with empathy, the information, how to reduce, include our mortality, mortality cases uh, with a perspective of improve our, our behavior, our knowledge, and our uh, teams or our hospitals. And I think that that is very important, not just the humanization with our patients, that of course is the, is the principal outcome, is our principal goal, excuse me, but uh, we need to think in the same way in our, in our human resource, because in many facilities there are very, very difficult conditions. It's impossible to maintain, you know, the leadership, you don't have the minimal conditions to, to, to speak about your situation, to be, to have the possibility to explain how is the stress in this situation. And if we don't, and thinking that the other part, inclusive for you, the technology, you need to maintain these non-technical skills uh, between the teams. And in the second, I think uh, that uh, especially after the pandemic, uh, we are thinking how our teams uh, were tired, uh, you know, very, very tired. And we probably, and, uh, and pandemic uh, was uh, the, the worst, a situation in a viral sepsis for our our uh, obstetric patients. Then uh, I I think that is uh, very important to recover. You know the hope that that, that at the end of the day is to recover uh, the possibility to maintain this challenge, to maintain you know the the uh, the behavior of the teams in, in other level. Then um, um, and I think that the for me, in this moment, after many years in critical care obstetric ICU, the most important thing is the, the humanization and empathy, of course, with our patient, but at the same time with our, our teams. Thanks, Maria Fernanda. And um, 
I would like um, to introduce you to uh, my colleague, Dr. Benedetta Allegranzi, who will be um, closing this session and presenting uh, the WHO perspective on um, sepsis and the, the work that we are doing from here. She works also in Geneva, the World Health Organization, and is um, the lead of our infection prevention and control hub and uh, task force. And we have been collaborating with her uh, for many, many years now in uh, bringing together infection prevention and control and uh, our work on uh, maternal sepsis. Benedetta, please, you have the floor. Thanks a lot, Mercedes. Uh, really many thanks to, to you and to colleagues, uh, the panelists, uh, uh, for this really interesting session. Uh, it is very difficult, of course, for me to, to make some closing remarks and wrapping up and also point out uh, a few aspects of the work we do. Uh, the panelists uh, gave really exceptional insights uh, from epidemiology of maternal sepsis to gaps and improvements needed in clinical care, as well as advocacy uh, and many other aspects uh, so that no uh, women uh, die from sepsis during or after pregnancy. They have emphasized the urgent need for strengthening identification, management, and prevention of maternal sepsis, starting from noting the recent data about maternal sepsis, frequency, mortality, and human suffering, unfortunately, uh, still on the rise. Uh, prevention and management of maternal infections are complex uh, challenges and require a comprehensive response from addressing individual level risk factors uh, such, such as anemia, for example, to changes in care practices to improve monitoring of women during hospital stay and appropriate uh, use of preventive measures, including antibiotic prophylaxis, which has been emphasized several times. Uh, the health systems and the lack of an enabling environment have been highlighted as important issues, and these are at the core of the WHO work as well. Overcrowding, limited access to water and sanitation, access to safe and appropriate antimicrobials, substandard uh, infection prevention and, and control measures can reduce the ability of healthcare providers to manage materia, maternal infections and sepsis. Uh, speakers also uh, highlighted the need to fill <coughs> uh, the global shortage of health workers, including midwives, so that women uh, get the life-saving care they need during and after pregnancy. Strengthening community health care and universal health coverage has been identified as a high priority as well so we can more closely meet the needs of women and enable equitable access to critical services during and after pregnancy 
for timely identification of risk factors and or infections that can evolve to sepsis. Strong engagement of communities in the planning, delivery, and evaluation of the health service that serve them. And this applies very positively to pregnant women and their families have been also highlighted. Women and their families can play a very active role in identifying signs and symptoms of sepsis. Therefore, efforts to address sepsis must engage and integrate communities as a proactive systematic activity that creates opportunity, opportunities for their education and involvement and builds relationships with healthcare professionals. Speakers mentioned several times weaker and less integrated health systems in low-middle-income countries that present significant gaps in the ability to prevent, diagnose, and manage maternal sepsis. Thus, our efforts in the fight to sepsis should be urgently concentrated on adapted interventions for capacity building in these countries. WHO is supporting solutions to these issues and countries and stakeholders improvement efforts in the area of sepsis and in particular maternal sepsis. Several examples have been provided already during this session. I just would like to draw your attention on recent uh, resources uh, we made available on infection prevention and control and hand hygiene measures during the pathways of women and their babies from the prenatal to the postnatal period. And every year, as you may know, on 5th of May, we celebrate World Hand Hygiene Day. This year, we call on civil society and other partner organizations, including yours, to accelerate progress at achieving effective hand hygiene and IPC practices at the point of care. You can find more information on our website and I really invite you all to take part in these global activities. I also would like to point out that 5th of May is also the International Day of the Midwife. And the coincidence of the two days is very timely to establish connections between the two areas of work. Finally, um, also many thanks to the WHO Department of Sexual and Reproductive Health and Research, which includes the Human Reproduction Program for contributing to the organization of this session. And last but not least, uh, really many thanks to the Global Sepsis Alliance for organizing this Congress and their commitment to keep maternal sepsis high on the agenda. Many thanks to you all for participating in the section and for continuing strongly your work on sepsis, especially maternal sepsis. Thank you. Many thanks, uh, Benedetta. Many thanks to all our panelists and, of course, to our audience. I think that this was very, very good uh, session. There's still 
few um, additional sessions um, for the day on the Congress. You are very much invited to listen uh, to them. And with that, I would like to say uh, goodbye to everybody. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who worked on the Congress. Session 13 is already in your feed. We will conclude the fourth WSC with sessions 15 and 16 next Tuesday, June 20th. See you then.